0: topics discussed for educational purposes only. Now welcome, integrative dieticians Allie Miller and her co-host Becky Yu.
1: Welcome to episode 49 of the Naturally Nourished podcast, and we are just wanting to jump right in into part two of our series on PCOS. So if you haven't listened to part one, go back to episode 48 as there's a lot of important information, including defining what PCOS actually is, and identifying main symptoms.
2: Yes, so, jam-packed for sure.
1: <laughs> so Allie, I know you are really passionate about sharing about this topic as you work with it often in clinic, and some of the symptoms are often overlooked or mismanaged.
2: Yes, for sure. I mean, when we talked in the first episode, we talked a lot about the conventional influences and treatment modalities and how... A sign, one of the biggest signs of PCOS is irregular menstruation or missing a period or going more than 35 days without cycling and having abnormalities. And then, you know, birth control being taken as that Band-Aid solution. So, so many women actually are walking around with muffled or Band-Aid approached PCOS and don't even know until then they start to deal with infertility down the line And the concern is after, you know, 8, 10 years of birth control, that really, that synthetic hormone can play a big role on our hormonal expression as well as driving micronutrient deficiency. So definitely something I'm passionate about as far as let's identify if we have PCOS and get to the root cause so that we can get true resolution versus just symptom muffling, if you will.
1: Sure. So in last episode, just to recap really briefly, part one, we covered the difference is between a woman who has polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS and a woman who has polycystic ovaries. We also covered symptoms and conditions that are associated with PCOS. We covered hormonal imbalance and dominance. We covered labs to monitor both conventional and functional assessments as well as what the interventions are in conventional medicine. So let's just start um, defining what PCOS is, just to open up, and then we won't go back on all that. So definitely <laughs> go back and listen to that part one episode forty eight.
2: Yes, yes. Uh, hold me back. Hold me back. I, I won't. I won't open the entire can of worms. Uh, so yes. Yeah, so. PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, uh, is generally going to be seen with women that have abnormalities in the metabolism of androgens and estrogen. So androgens are going to be our adrenal-driven hormones. So these are things like cortisol, DHEA, and testosterone. And often there is an imbalance in the androgen production of a woman with PCOS.
1: Okay. And we talked a lot about medical criteria for diagnosis as well. Some of the labs and we touched on symptoms like abnormal hair growth, but what are some of the most commonplace symptoms that are experienced by women that have undiagnosed PCOS?
2: Yeah. Well, and in this episode, I think that I did a little bit of disservice not going into all of the lifestyle symptoms. So I want to touch on those as well. So As I mentioned, abnormal menstruation is kind of the the number one, and that's actually one of the diagnostic criteria for PCOS, so irregular cycles. Um, And mind you, again, if you're taking birth control, that doesn't count as a regular cycle because that's a Band-Aid. So you could still have abnormal cycles, you know, but by taking birth control, have normal cycles, but you'd still fall into that criteria. Does does that make sense? Am I explaining that that correctly? (laughs) Okay, so oily skin and skin tags um, would be another thing that we would see as kind of a visual representation. And we can also see beyond oily skin and skin tags acne. This would be a whole other thing. And then uh, weight gain is a big thing. And weight gain tends to also associate it with uh, insulin resistance. We talked a lot last episode about elevated blood sugar levels. So seeing that prediabetes diagnostic uh, criteria or insulin resistance or increase of the three month average of blood sugar, which would be that hemoglobin A1C, but also just having weight gain and stubborn metabolism would be something that we'd look at. And then there's some of the mood stuff like anxiety and insomnia. Sleep apnea is actually really highly tied to women with PCOS and fatigue, chronic fatigue syndrome, or just irregular abnormal energy levels. This often ties within that whole adrenal piece of the puzzle. And beyond that, anxiety element, we can see depression, the other end of the spectrum. So that overwired, overtired, flat affect, we can see, again, getting back to the high and wired panic attacks and um, even uh, other hormonal imbalance symptoms like headaches.
1: Okay. So that could be a lot of people out there. Let's talk about why or how PCOS actually happens. So we talked a little bit in last episode about the HPA versus the HPO axis. Let's start there.
2: Okay, so we see a big driver as androgenic or adrenal dysfunction. So PCOS can result from abnormal function of the HPA axis. Um, which then reduces the expression of the HPO axis. So basically, the HPA axis is the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal. This is our fight-or-flight mechanism of the body. So when that HPA axis is in overdrive, the body is not expressing ample amounts of its focus on the rest and digest element of the body, which is going to be where the HPO axis lies. So rest and digest also encompasses rest and reproduce, okay? And so rest, reproduce, digest, all of those happen in the more relaxed mental space, not in that fight or flight, so not in that sympathetic um, response. And so the HPO axis tends to be down-regulated when the HPA is up-regulated, and that's where those women become more androgenic. Their adrenal gland in the HPA, that's the A of the HPA axis, is in overstimulation mode, and their poor uh, ovaries are understimulated because they're not in that, that relaxed environment. So excess stress is definitely a huge driver
1: and then getting into more of the metabolic piece let's talk about the pregnenolone steel
2: yes so there, beyond that so yes stress drives this and pregnenolone is our building steroidal hormone so pregnenolone plays a role in production of vitamin D cholesterol testosterone and then also progesterone and estrogen So uh, pregnenolone gets taken in the androgenic pathways to make cortisol and DHEA in an individual that has high stress demand. And so that leaves very little of the pregnenolone building block to be used for progesterone. And so that's what we're talking about with that pregnenolone steel. So actually metabolically, the stress response pulls the building block from making the progesterone into those androgenic pathways. And then there's even some structural elements. So once we have more cortisol floating in the bloodstream or on higher demand from that androgenic release, The adrenals make the cortisol and then cortisol can actually further bind to progesterone receptors. So of the moderate amount of progesterone the body's making from that little amount of pregnenolone that's left, the progesterone is not as able to bind to its receptor site. So, you know, all hormones are like lock and key. Just having the key does not mean that it's hitting the lock to do the function. So if there's something else blocking that pathway, like excessive cortisol, then even the little amount of progesterone that is produced isn't structurally able to be expressed. So there's the metabolic production pathway. There's the structural influence of is the hormone able to hit the receptor site? And then there's the actual stimulation to the gland influence, which would be the overproduction. And so when we're looking at this HPA or HPO, you will see that the hypothalamus and pituitary is going to be the star of both shows. It's the variance of, again, whether we're going more adrenal-based or more ovarian-based. So in the sense of PCOS, That pituitary gland is focused more on the ACTH, which is the stimulator to the adrenals, regulating and driving adrenal stimulation versus the ovarian stimulation and the progesterone production.
1: So then, Allie, would people who have adrenal fatigue be at higher risk for PCOS?
2: Absolutely. And it really depends. I mean, the word adrenal fatigue, typically we think of that as having low adrenal output in some way, shape or form. So actually having too low of cortisol um, or having uh, too low of DHEA. And, you know, actually we can see on both ends of the puzzle, we tend to actually think the hyper androgenic individuals. So those that are over adrenal stimulated would be more of the classified focus of PCOS however like the body does it tends to go high before it flat lines or goes low so many people that have adrenal fatigue historically had instead of hypoadrenal output hyperadrenal output or too much and they have some of that still residual hormonal imbalance from the time stamp when they had that excess of cortisol and epinephrine um, and, and with that being said, even if the adrenals are pooped per se in, in a severe level of adrenal fatigue and the cortisol is very low, um, that also will still have residual sexual hormone influence um, and, and very difficult to rebound progesterone when the cortisol is so flatlined. So, so definitely that could put us at a higher risk. And especially knowing that that individual with adrenal fatigue had likely excess adrenal output preceding their adrenal fatigue diagnosis.
1: So one thing that I find really shocking as a new practitioner is that stress and its influence in the body um, can play such a huge role in underlying in so many different conditions. And then there's also the fact that stress doesn't have to be something negative per se. It doesn't have to be that perception of stress.
2: Right. A lot of mamas, you know, I mean, they love their children, but they're stressed (laughs) or planning a wedding can be a a good stressor, right? Sure.
1: So that you stress, that good stress. Uh, But then there's also the stress of a physiological versus a, you know, psychological stressor where something is just off and stressing the body. It Dysbiosis or overgrowth of bad bacteria could be food sensitivity, could be an inflammatory process.
2: Yes, yes. So, you know, that's something really, I think that's a great point to make. I do a stress assessment in my practice where I try to determine, and that's just a survey, honestly, to get started, where we look at our, is the individual, you know, stressed and wired or stressed and tired? And we're trying to get a a snapshot of if they have uh, HPA access overdrive or underdrive so we can start to determine where we want to dig deeper. However, with that being said, there are some individuals that have zero experience of chronic fatigue, zero experience of anxiety, zero experience of some of these symptoms of mental stress demand, right? However, their body is expressing accelerated epinephrine, um, which is adrenaline, because they're in a constant state or cortisol irregularities, Because their body is battling inflammation, right? So, I mean, we can see this like in post concussive syndrome. Okay, so someone gets in a severe car accident, they're going to have severe adrenal instability and distress pathways because those cortisol steroid hormones were trying to be upregulated in the healing process, right? So that's, that's a trauma on the body that can drive HPA axis imbalance. Or like you mentioned, in the gut. So SIBO or dysbiosis or parasite, that can drive distress and chronic stress to this pathway, which would need to be addressed. And of course, the root of that would be doing some form of probably a cleanse um, and, and probably doing a stool test to assess what's going on with the microbiome as the root cause, but definitely not to be overlooked as the influence then on the HPA access. So there's definitely drivers beyond the mental perception of stress that can drive the hyperandrogenic pathway, which can then create the PCOS diagnosis for sure. And I, I will say, I think at least 80% of my females with SIBO also have some form of PCOS. So I, I don't think that that's a uh, fluke. I think that that's definitely a trend. And it, it's a survival mechanism of their adrenals going on overdrive to, to help to combat the bacteria.
1: Sure. That's super interesting. So even if you don't think that you're stressed, there could be something underlying that is stressing out your body.
2: Yes. And just one more thing on that. Again, a lot of those individuals might be on birth control, right? So they're not even thinking of a diagnosis of PCOS because they're cycling regularly. So, and then the birth control influences their microbiome and it's a vicious cycle for sure. Sure. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs>
1: okay. So let's talk now about how we would address and manage this HPA access piece and this stress piece.
2: Sure. So I, I would start with the Neurohormone Complete Plus panel and you know this is if I'm not seeing acute GI distress otherwise I would maybe start with the gut but generally speaking for most of the population that is experiencing any of those symptoms of either anxiety depression insomnia knowing just that they're under high stress people that are uh, in advanced education or Uh, meeting a lot of deadlines and having high cognitive performance demand, having irregular sleep patterns, you know, all of these people, and then any of the expression of the hormonal imbalance, I'm always going to start with the NeuroHormone Complete Plus test. Uh, This is going to be very helpful because it's going to look at our sexual hormone expression. So it actually looks at three types of estrogen. It looks at the progesterone. It looks at the testosterone. And then it also looks at both parts of the production of the adrenals. It looks at the adrenal cortex producers, which is the DHEA and the cortisol, as well as the medulla part of the gland, which is going to be those neurotransmitters. This is the bells and whistles of the stress response, which are our epinephrine, our dopamine, and our norepinephrine. So this is huge. And you know, for those that right now are listening and saying, this is me, And I'm not sure I can afford this test. The test does run around $400. Um, And so if you've been dealing with this for a while, I think information is key. And I think it's the best way to to invest and start a plan. But if we're not ready to jump into that, and we just want to work on our day-to-day stress management, we can definitely start to implement some lifestyle techniques. And I think that one baseline formula that I'd recommend for sure is the calm and clear because this can be a huge game changer for regulating that HPA access on both ends of the spectrum.
1: Okay, so I've recently fallen in love with Calm and Clear, so I'm gonna make a quick little plug for it here. (laughs) Um, So three elements of of this Calm and Clear supplement, it contains L-theanine, which helps to modulate our neurotransmitters. So it helps to bring some of the low ones up and bring the high ones down, kind of bringing them back into balance. And then L-theanine also is associated with concentration and focus, um, kind of that focused energy of getting things done versus the wiry, shaky, unstable energy that you'd find with something like coffee. (laughs) And then we're looking at B vitamins, which will help to activate our neurotransmitters and aid in conversion to the active forms. And then vitamin C to work on tonifying the adrenals.
2: Yeah, I I think it's an awesome formula. And then it has a pairing of both adaptogen and nervine herbs. So the adaptogens are herbs that help us with vigor and energy. So adaptogens help us to adapt to high stress demand and have that high performance level, whereas nervines help to reduce excitatory distress and are very calmative and relaxing so this balance of and then like you said driven by this brain wave of the l-theanine to help with the alpha pathway which helps with concentration, focus, meditation, deep REM cycle of sleeps. Um, And so this is a great option, like I said, if you can't afford to look at your neurotransmitters, because like Becky said, it helps to modulate both the lows and highs. It doesn't drive one pathway. Like I would never preemptively recommend a formula with like 5 HTP without data because that could drive serotonin and it could drive excessive serotonin expression because that's the one pathway it follows. The calm and clear strategically does not drive one pathway and so it is a very safe formula that also can safely be taken with antidepressants and anti-anxiety drugs and then eventually maybe as a replacement or, or as a preventative measure to not have to go on either of those families of medications. So okay, I think we're this. both gobbling those down uh-huh. <laughs> pretty regularly. can take, what, up to six a day? I think I'm yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, I am too, yes. But, but definitely can influence – I can experience the influence. And I will say – sorry, Brady, if you're listening. Uh, my husband takes it too, and uh, as a spouse um, assessment – I can notice when he hasn't taken it, I'll kind of look at him and he gets a little uptight and anxious and I'll just be like, babe, have you taken your calm and clear? (laughs) And I'll kind of just like slide to over the countertop. And I think that they really help in, um, he's someone who gets a little bit of that, I think, excessive epinephrine output. So it helps to mellow him out for sure.
1: Sure. And get stuff done.
2: (laughs) Yes. Yep. Yep.
1: Okay, so what about other supplements for people who are dealing with fatigue from stress?
2: So another one you could consider, which would also be a very safe base formula, would be our Adaptogen Boost. And Adaptogen Boost is going to help for stress-induced fatigue, so prolonged chronic stress that starts to kind of dampen and create fatigue. It is an all-herbal blend versus a nutritional and herbal combo. And this is based on all adaptogenic herbs, which help us to, again, respond to stress and their influences on the HPA access without the HPA access having to go into overdrive mode. So this can actually, with those adaptogenic compounds, including things like ginseng, cordyceps, and rhodiola, make us more resilient to stress and address those different body systems, so the HPA access, HPO access, that are Involved in our stress response. So, this will help to reduce the excessive androgenic output in response to stress while still giving us that vigor and energy that we're looking for for the high demand.
1: And then, would both supplements at the same time be appropriate?
2: They could be, yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, the adaptogen boost again would be ones that would be used to help with that peak performance and um, the fatigue. So usually that's like a rise and 3 p.m. timestamp. Whereas the calm and clear, I typically kind of spread throughout the day. So like rise or at breakfast, calm and clear can be taken with or without food. So rise or at breakfast, lunch, and then at bed typically is kind of the timestamps. I'll use the calm and clear.
1: Okay, good, because I'm definitely taking both.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so we're super excited. We just came out with these um, in the last three months as far as uh, formulas via the Naturally Nourished line. And it took a lot of time and energy to really find ones that I felt were F- providing efficacy with my client population and um after the the five years of naturally nourish, these are two of my favorite formulas, like I said, that I feel are at a very reasonable price point to get outcomes and be safely taken without uh, extensive information and assessments and may on their own help to resolve that root cause of the HPA access imbalance.
1: Sure. So just getting above water with those supplements. And then We also talked about a little bit of the lifestyle modification aspect. So let's just touch on things like breath, mantra, mindfulness.
2: Yeah, yeah. I love talking about these things. And um, a really good app that I recommend to clients is called Headspace. Uh, This has different kind of challenges, if you will, or tiers based on your ability to start to implement meditation as a ritual and routine. And so I think that this is a great option. There's a free level, and then there's paid levels, depending on you know how aggressive you want to go with it. But this is just a great option to start to fit in that mental space and that reset. Um, another one you mentioned breath. So breath is something that's super important. Um, we've talked on other episodes, and I didn't put my show notes. I'm forgetting, but I think it's called five seven nine breath, um, where we look for inhaling for five, holding the breath for seven. And then exhaling for nine, um, it it may be four six eight, but I believe it's five seven nine breathing. Maybe you can do a quick Google as a rant, <laughs> but sure. I think it's five seven nine. And the, it's interesting is that you're exhaling for the longest period of time, and what this actually does is it's able to have a immediate well within a minute of, of applying this type of breathing, it's able to change your vagus nerve, which is the nerve that goes from the brain stem down to the base of the colon. And it actually can influence that sympathetic nervous response. And so this is one of the easiest ways to literally put a harness on the wild stallion of the brain. Um, and this is what really helps to slow down that overexcitatory distress. Did you find something?
1: So it looks like it's four seven eight. So okay, you are close. I was just
2: an overachiever with my five seven yep. nine. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. So yeah, it's in in through your nose for four, hold for seven, exhale for eight, and literally practicing that type of breathing like six times within, like I said, a minute, plays a dynamic change on your your central nervous system, and so really awesome way of directly harnessing. So Headspace app four, seven, eight breath. Sleep hygiene is huge. So sleep hygiene means just like with our, my 14-month old, we have a ritual with her, right? So we do dinner, we go for a wagon walk, <laughs> we do our bath time, and then we read two books and she goes down. Um, adults love structure as well as, as children do. And so having sleep hygiene, maybe it's doing some foam rolling, Maybe it's uh, starting your diffuser in your bedroom with essential oils like lavender and chamomile and doing some foam rolling and then maybe doing some oil pulling and then taking your evening probiotic and GI lining and um, having a couple minutes of mindfulness, prayer, meditation. Um, All of these things really help to get into that brain space of shutting it down Because we do know that the better we get into REM cycle, the better we get more neuro regeneration, but we also tend to get less overreactive HPA access response. So sleep and qualitative sleep is super important for regulating this cycle.
1: Sure. So not going from the laptop straight into bed because we realize we've passed our bedtime. And I know I'm guilty of that. Yes, Um, yes.
2: And then- What about- Go ahead. Exercise, Allie. Yes, yes. Yeah. Thank you, because I think this is one that I touched on a little bit last episode, but absolutely and honestly, this is where I think we're seeing a huge increase in PCOS diagnosis from things like CrossFit and a lot of the HIT training that's very popular, spin classes. Um, I have a lot of health nut clients that are also uh, wellness coaches and exercise instructors and a lot of them are experiencing Amenorrhea or irregular cycles, and it really is because they're going androgenic, and that's because their body, their muscle tissue, is the secondary tissue for testosterone production. And so, when they're constantly tearing those branched chain amino acids and rebuilding, they're upregulating their testosterone expression. And exercise can be a stressor on the body, so when we're constantly in this fight-or-flight mode physiologically, like a spin class, like, ah, you know, the push, the grind, we're really wringing out those poor adrenal glands and putting out excessive DHEA and excessive cortisol, or at least excessive epinephrine and um, dopamine and norepinephrine. And so that's part of the surge of of the feel-good of exercise that people become addicted to, the the, um, influence on the brain and the energy, those endorphins, but that also can drive androgenic excessive expression, which can reduce our ovarian expression and drive PCOS. So finding cadence with your exercise, finding rhythm and breath is super important and not over-exercising, taking at least a couple days a week off and participating on those days in gentle movement therapy, like a relaxing bike bike ride or a walk around the park it could be a five mile walk you know but just finding cadence and conversation and relaxation with the movement is really important.
1: Sure and then things like yoga or a bar method class as well.
2: Absolutely yeah those would be key for sure.
1: Okay so that was all on the stress piece. (laughs) Yes. That was all having to do with stress. This is why we have Um, part
2: two right? (laughs) uh (laughs) Uh-huh.
1: So now let's talk about a totally different reason for PCOS, but I guess it can be another stressor, if you will, on the body. Talking about the role of endocrine disruptors and toxicity.
2: Yes. So this is a huge piece as well. You know, toxins are stored in our fat cells, and our fat cells have hormonal influences themselves. And so we're actually calling our adipocytes or our fat cells endocrine glands now in up-to-date research so we're, we're literally noticing that our fat cells can be as influential as things like the thyroid as other hormonal glands like the ovaries and so it, it's really an, a big influence that toxins are stored in our fat cells and especially the endocrine disruptors which are a specific family of toxins that can play a disrupting role on our hormonal expression targeting the direct hormone glands themselves so that's the sexual reproductive hormone glands and like I said the thyroid and such as well as our our, um, uh, fat cells by being stored in our fat so some of the big categories of these are going to be seen in I think of the three p's and so we talk about pesticides plastics and perfumes and so when we're talking about drivers of our endocrine disruption this is where we can see sources and we see things like plasticizers with bpa or ph- or, or phthalates they're called i always mispronounce but phthalates um, and these belong to categories of the endocrine disrupting hormones that also drive age production in the body which is the advanced glycation end product so like that tari plaque and we've seen these are present in our day-to-day function our industrialized life cycle and so The influence, again, of the endocrine disruptors is that they directly can bind to our hormone receptors, so they actually function as hormone mimickers in the body. And then again, secondarily, they get stored in the fat, which can then be released at any time and influence our hormonal expression. And what's concerning is their response can be varied than the actual hormone itself, so they can have a varied hormonal response than the hormone that it's mimicking, if that makes sense. Um, So they can interfere with our metabolic function and actually the National Institute of Health, I was just reading up, you know, in preparation for today and the National Institute of Health was doing studies on infants and they actually state that it's now evident that fetuses, infants and young children are the most susceptible groups to these endocrine disrupting compounds in their developmental periods. And this is where we're actually going to, they're hypothesizing or guessing that we're going to see a lot more um, androgynous or uh, babies that are born without direct genitalia um, of one or other because we're actually seeing a huge influence on the um, production of, of the baby as far as its sex. And we're seeing this in the environment with things like fish. Um, with the, the runoff of PCBs and fertilizers in our water, um, we're seeing a big influence with fish populations dying because we're not getting direct masculine fish to fertilize eggs. Um, and so we're starting to see a lot of changes in the environment based on these, these endocrine disrupting compounds
1: pretty wild and a little bit scary
2: yeah uh, let's a lot talk a lot ab- bit scary <laughs> yes let's talk
1: about some of the sources and things to avoid on our labels
2: so yeah so the first one is pesticides and so pesticides are going to be seen in dioxins is one of the big categories um and, and just pesticide sprays in our um agricultural system and so this is uh, dioxins i'm sorry are a byproduct of combustion so this is like from flame retardants and actual flame Um, so things like our um, vehicles and hazards and then pesticides that are sprayed agriculturally then the phthalates and and um, bpas are going to be found in plastics Um, phthalates are also found as i mentioned in perfumes and cosmetics cleaning agents Um, And then, like I said, the BPA is in a lot of food lining. So, even cans are lined with BPA, a lot of water bottles. um, And so, even um, ensuring that our day-to-day drinking, you know, water uh, bottles is a huge source of BPA. And we're all drinking out of water bottles almost daily. And it's important to note that temperature plays a huge role. So, in transport and hot trucks, you know, that's when then the bottles are higher prone towards leaching of higher amounts of BPA. And the older a plastic is, the more EDs it's releasing and so or endocrine disruptors it's releasing. And so uh, once we throw these away, the landfill effect into our environment, into the soil, into the groundwater has precipitating influence. And so the, the biggest thing with all of these is, is if we can eradicate as much as possible, getting into... In-home water filtration, using the stainless steel water bottles would be a huge piece. Looking for less packaged food, you know, and really trying to shop your farmer's markets in that perimeter of the grocery store so we're not dealing with a lot of these synthetic compounds that start to play a toll on our fertility, our sexual hormone expression, and ultimately, for today's topic, PCOS.
1: And then with the beauty piece and the cosmetics too, I know we have a blog post about safer beauty options and some of these hidden sources. So I'll link to that in the show notes as well.
2: Awesome. Yep. And and, and the, the unfortunate reality is it's pretty unavoidable. We can reduce our exposure, right? So like I said, we can find BPA-free versions of things. We can um, you know try to do organic or local produce, which is not going to have those harsh pesticides applied. We can reduce our consumption of the processed foods and foods that are in containers. We can try to reduce the use of fragrances and such. And all of those are great steps in the right direction. But the unfortunate reality is the groundwater and soil influence just across the board. So it actually takes proactive measures to implement supporting the detox process, right? Beyond just the strategic avoidance of exposure, because unfortunately, air and water and soil are going to be inevitable forms of exposure of these compounds.
1: Sure. And that's something that everyone is being exposed to then, or at least what 90% plus of our population. Um, So that would be an appropriate intervention of using our 10 day detox, then it would be a good jump start to reduce some of the P- PCOS expression and reduce some of this influence of these chemicals.
2: Absolutely. And especially, you know, we talked in the last episode about the connection of things like dairy with acne and PCOS. Well, toxins and acne can also be a big piece, right? But definitely playing a scramble on your hormonal piece, uh, getting the toxic exposure down, but also supporting the detox process. So, Starting with a clean whole foods diet that is focused on, like I said, organic and local sustainable produce, rich in antioxidants and clean lean proteins is going to be a great foundational diet. And our 10-day detox gives a specific protocol to really do this. It uh, really walks us in a bell curve as far as targeting and focusing the nutritional compounds that help to drive the detox process.
1: And so this type of detox would be a nutritionally supported and a medically supported detox, if you will, um, where versus something like a juice cleanse or an unsupported detox, yes. we're getting support in what's called phase one and phase two of detoxification. So our phase one looking at pulling those toxins from our fat stores in hydroxylation and turning them into water soluble toxins and then That's kind of where like a juice cleanse would stop, where it's like we're taking a bath in this same dirty water. That's what I always tell clients.
2: Yeah, it's so true. I love that comparison.
1: And then phase two would be conjugation and excretion, where we're basically encapsulating or trapping these toxins and safely packaging them up to get rid of them.
2: Totally, which is the most important part, right? (laughs) Excretion. We don't just want to release the toxins and then have them find their ways back into other fatty tissue in the body. So, you know, like you said, yeah, there's two phases to detox. Phase one is activation and release, which requires biochemical reactivity of hydroxylation. And that makes a uh, toxin more water-soluble. Then phase two, and, and this occurs primarily in the liver. Phase two occurs in the liver and the kidneys. And this is where we're going to get the excretion and removal. The fancy terms are conjugation and sulfoneration. And yes, we're encapsulating the toxins and removing them from the body in our urine. The kidneys pass off the blood toxins to be urinary metabolites. We also upregulate the release in the stool. And then even in our um, other tissue, like our transdermal release through sweat and such. Uh, And so upregulating phase one and phase two drives this perfect symphony in the body. And this is important to support with functional intervention of therapeutic nutrients. Because we tend to be in this overfed malnourished where we're getting excessive calories but not in the most nutritional dense forms. Or, like we said, even if you're eating an organic diet, your body's going to be overburdened with toxins by just the lifestyle and just where our environment is, that even if you are eating an organic, clean diet, you likely are at some level under-supported with the specific nutrients needed for both phase 1 and phase 2 activity. So really upregulating this Detox, at least quarterly, is an important piece of whole body hormonal health. And then also as we connected the dots, that can help to regulate your stress axis because your bells and whistles of your stress axis are going off because your body has excessive toxic expression and it's trying to create balance in that.
1: Sure. So our detox, we're going to hit the diet aspect with that 10-day bell curve. And then we also include our detox supplement packs, which will have both the antioxidant support for that phase one and the sulfur-containing amino acid support for phase two.
2: Yes. And then also liver gallbladder uh, support. So bitter compounds that help to stimulate bile flow and help to upregulate the action of the liver. So there's the antioxidant capsule which helps with protecting the cells from the damage from the breakdown of the toxins then there's the liver gallbladder support to drive that phase one activity with things like watercress a little bit of diuretic influence as well as like i said bile flow because bile helps to conjugate and excrete and then the phase two is the biggest piece of the puzzle there's actually three capsules supporting phase two so we're over driving that encapsulation and excretion And for some of you listening, you know, if you feel like you're already eating a super clean diet, then just using those detox packs, uh, you know, for 10 days, a couple times a year could be appropriate. Um, But I do feel that the 10-day detox with the virtual class or DVD is a great option to jumpstart things. Um, But if you were to just add the packs into your regimen, you could take one pack at rise and one at bed for days one through four. And then days five through eight, you would take three packs a day. And then days 9 and 10, you would take one pack twice a day again. So you're kind of creating a little bell curve again to kind of upregulate and really focus on detoxification in the middle of that period of the 10 days.
1: Okay, so detox would be a really good starting point. And maybe that's an easier one to tackle than stress, which can be a little bit daunting. You
2: can't always just quit your job or change things with your, you know, family members and things like that. So detox is something definitely that you can reduce that excessive stress response more physiologically.
1: Sure. And then let's talk about one. So that's one and two. Let's talk about one final element to PCOS. So the mechanism of insulin resistance.
2: Yes. So we tend to release too much insulin in PCOS, and this is what causes our ovaries to then actually release too much testosterone. So our ovaries can make testosterone as well, and when we're hyperinsulinemia, testosterone tends to be released instead of the uh, progesterone and or optimal estrogen. So we have to get our insulin and blood sugar under control if we're going to improve our PCOS-like symptoms. So you know watching the overall use of glucose as fuel or blood sugar spiking in the body is our first place to start to kind of harness and reduce excessive insulin
1: okay and now that we've talked about insulin resistance um the high glycemic diet in last episode but it's so key to talk about keto as a solution as well so let's just reiterate sure the influence of ketosis
2: sure so you know the influence of ketosis The body, when it makes ketone bodies instead of glucose as the primary fuel source, using glucose from carbohydrate metabolism. um, In a ketogenic diet, we starve the body of carbs as its primary fuel source or, or glucose as its primary fuel source. The body has to go into our fat stores or use fat as a metabolite to make ketone bodies. And this really helps to improve insulin sensitivity. So that's a first solution right there. It actually could improve insulin sensitivity by 400%. So this in itself is going to reduce that excess of testosterone because it's not having the trigger of excessive insulin driving testosterone from the ovaries. So reducing the insulin demand by reducing the glucose in the blood then the pancreas is not going to be focusing on insulin production because the glucose is so low and ketones are the primary fuel source. So that's a great element. And then there's other elements of ketosis beyond blood sugar regularity. So low low blood sugar or blood sugar reduction would be seen, which is also seen in a reduction of the hemoglobin A1C, that three-month blood sugar average, and as I mentioned, the insulin. We're also going to see with the ketogenic diet some sexual hormone change, and uh, some cortisol hormone change. So we'll see reduction of DHEA because DHEA is a building block to make ketone bodies. So if that DHEA was elevated in, in the androgenic pathway or stress response, that'll go down with ketogenic diet. We see an increase of HGH. Um, this ex- actually goes up even higher if we're practicing intermittent fasting with ketosis, which is an element of our protocol. So this will help to stimulate the pituitary in the brain to make sexual hormone expression. Also, we can see just like with the reduction of insulin excess, we can see a reduction of serum leptin. And leptin plays a big role with satiety or satiation, which can then help with weight loss and in turn reduce body fat because we're using body fat as fuel. And then the final thing I would say within the ketogenic diet is that we can see a reduction in inflammation, and that's because we're pulling out a lot of the pro-inflammatory foods, which are also carbohydrates. So this is foods like our gluten-containing grain family, or grains in general, and corn, and refined sugars, and soy, and uh, all of these foods are going to be pulled out during a ketogenic diet, and a therapeutic balanced ketogenic diet is going to be abundant in things like wild fish, grass-fed proteins coconut oil, and then leafy greens, nuts and seeds, avocado. And then if it's even further more therapeutic, like our protocol, we also have high antioxidant herb seasonings and spices, like curry powder on our roasted cauliflower, which is going to help with additional anti-inflammatory support from the turmeric. So it can definitely be metabolically, hormonally, a big piece in the right direction for PCOS treatment.
1: And then I know we touched on it in last episode, part one, but let's just get into the low glycemic diet a little bit and when that would be a more appropriate choice than ketosis.
2: Sure. So, you know, it it really is individualized. And um, if an individual is dealing with severe adrenal fatigue, then, you know, we might not want to go into ketogenic diet, especially if there's someone that has like very low uh, DHEA, for instance, because they won't have the fuel source to make ketones. So for an individual dealing with severe adrenal fatigue, we'd probably go more low glycemic, uh, which would be reducing carbohydrates, maybe even fully going paleo with a reduction of carbohydrates. So we're just going to use starches from the non, the uh, like sweet potato and uh, carrots and beets and then berries and lower glycemic fruits. And we can definitely still see a reduction of insulin, body fat, blood sugar, uh, where we won't see a big influence is on as much of that HGH, the human growth hormone, or the DHEA again, because we're not using that as a fuel source. Um, And we won't see as much of an influence with the changes in leptin. But we could definitely see the changes in blood sugar, insulin resistance, and inflammation, especially if that individual is pairing that with an elimination diet using like an MRT blood test to look at food sensitivities. And um, that could definitely pair hand in hand as a successful approach for PCOS.
1: Okay. And then just to reiterate real quick, foods to avoid.
2: So in general right so whether we're going keto or low glycemic we'd want to avoid all high glycemic inflammatory foods so refined sugar especially fructose in its refined forms gluten and gluten containing products and really all grains would be ideally eliminated and then uh, dairy would be one as an additional uh, hormonal contributor to estrogen because even if it is a hormone-free dairy as far as like an added growth hormone it still is going to have estrogenic influence in the body because it's breast milk you know so breast milk has estrogen in it so it definitely will have some hormonal influence
1: sure and then let's get into micronutrient deficiency trends so we talked a little last episode about foods to include. And I think we'll do that a little bit here as well. But let's yes. talk about the deficiency trends that we see in PCOS as long as well as the supplement interventions.
2: So inositol would be my first uh, one of focus. And inositol plays a huge role with our neurological system. It, uh, there's been a lot of studies shown that inositol deficiency is very common in women with insulin resistance. It does play a huge role in our blood sugar metabolism. There is a reduced ability to process, metabolize, and use inositol from foods, um, which makes it difficult for a food recommendation. So supplement is usually the go-to for inositol. And um, like I said, insulin resistance is one of the biggest things that we see with inositol, as well as neurological. Influences. So we can even see um, like tingling sensation or uh, loss of uh, function in hands or feet and things like that. The um, nutritional requirement, um, you can see sources of inositol from citrus and especially citrus uh, peels and things like that so zesting your citrus using citrus as an infuse, infusing um, compound for water infusions like uh using orange slices in your water with rosemary and things like that but generally it is a conditionally essential nutrient in women um and especially women that tend to have some insulin resistance so this could be and and acetol is my go-to to lower testosterone with that being said so um Two to four grams a day is generally a recommended amount. And like I said, when I'm seeing elevated testosterone in any individual, that's my go-to to help to lower the testosterone. And that also helps then in turn with blood sugar metabolism.
1: Okay, and then what about magnesium?
2: So magnesium also is one that we've seen uh, women with PCOS to have significantly low serum and total magnesium levels. And this also can contribute to the progression of insulin resistance and type two diabetes. It also can play a role in driving elevated blood pressure because it helps with relaxation and or symptoms of things like anxiety, you know, which we discussed earlier on as a symptom of PCOS. Uh, Magnesium is such a superstar nutrient. It's used in over 300 different bodily reactions and functions. It plays a role with detoxification, so it can help support our detox pathways. It plays a role with our blood sugar regulation and then relaxation of those blood vessels, which can help with the blood sugar stability. Now luckily, food form, it is quite abundant in the diet, so leafy greens are a really big base of getting our ample magnesium, and leafy greens are a good two-for-one for women that are looking for fertility because they're also high in folate. So about two to three cups a day would be a really great goal of leafy greens. And then um, pumpkin seed uh, is going to be a huge one as well. Pumpkin seeds are actually one of the richest source. And actually only 180 calories of pumpkin seeds can give you about 50% of your daily need. So having about a quarter cup of pumpkin seeds mixed with blueberries will be a great support of um, getting that magnesium of need and also um, a little bit of other minerals that help with hormonal support
1: okay and then the form of magnesium is important here too right for
2: sure yep so i always look at a chelated form of minerals so glycinate is going to be the best form for the uh magnesium magnesium glycinate is going to be a fully reacted amino acid chelate and this is going to help with enhanced support and absorption you definitely want to steer away from magnesium citrate which works more as just like a stool softener and has more osmotic properties The magnesium glycinate is going to be more neuromuscular and have more of these functions on the insulin resistance, blood sugar metabolism, and such. So I like to recommend between 500 to 2 grams, 500 milligrams to 2 grams of a bisglycinate form. And one formula that pairs both the magnesium and the uh, inositol is our Relax and Regulate. So Relax and Regulate is going to be a powder that's going to be a uh, supporter for mood, relaxation, and overall nervous function. And it features that inositol at a four gram dosage and then the glycinate at a 200 milligram dosage. Um, And so this is a great support for nerve system, brain, and then it can help a little bit with bowel motility, but not as a stool softener, as more of influencing the nerve impulse, which helps peristalsis or that involuntary pumping of the large intestine.
1: Sure, and then it can also kind of help with that wind down at night with the muscle relaxation that you talked about for those stressed and tightly wound up patients.
2: Yes, yes. So it's definitely the Relax and Regulate is my go-to for those two nutrients of need. Absolutely.
1: Okay, and then let's talk about vitamin C.
2: Okay, So vitamin C is another one that we'd want to look at, um, which is gonna help with our serum progesterone levels. So many people don't connect that it actually has direct hormonal drivers, and it can help with regulating our adrenals as well. Actually, vitamin C is highest stored in the adrenal gland. And so this is one that we'd want to optimize to regulate the androgenic pathways in the body. So this will help to reduce excessive output of our cortisol and also will help to ensure that progesterone is manufactured. So you get a really nice two-for-one with the vitamin C. And then, of course, it has its gamuts of response for like reduction of excessive histamine reactivity in the body for seasonal allergies. It can help as an antioxidant, which can also be helpfully supportive for detox. And um, it can also help with overall immune system support. My favorite food form for the vitamin C is Kamu Kamu. Uh, which is going to be a powder that you can use in smoothies or shakes. Um, and then also connecting with an inositol citrus and including like the rind of your citrus is going to be great. So we do a uh, smoothie. I can't think of the name of it in our um, boogers. There's an adrenal, um, maybe we can link it. I think it might be called HPA Access and Balance. Um, but there is a pot, uh, blog episode that we do where we blend an entire... Lemon, we just peel it, but we keep that pith intact. Um, And that's like our adrenal rehab shake. Um, So that also includes that high amount of vitamin C. And bell peppers are another good form. And then another vitamin C is going to be looking at um, in the supplemental form. So we do this in our adrenal gummies. And we also do this in that same shake that I'm referencing, which has, I think, a couple grams of the vitamin C buffered powder added in, as well as the peeled lemon.
1: So between my dog barking and the construction noises outside, getting a little thrown off here, but I will make sure that... We link to – and he's not a barker either, so I'm surprised.
2: He just knows we're recording. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, so I'll link to those adrenal gummies as well as this smoothie. I know we have a stress-busting smoothie, but I'm not sure if it's that one or if it's something else. But I'll make sure I link to that in show notes. Yeah. And okay. then let's talk about vitamin D. Okay.
2: Okay. So vitamin D is another one that we think of as far as fertility. And vitamin D, when we tend to see elevated testosterone and insulin resistance, I tend to think that vitamin D might be deficient. Uh, Vitamin D plays a big role in uh, regulating these hyperandrogenism Um, responses and insulin responses and so getting vitamin d optimized is huge and that's why it can help with fertility and then we also know that vitamin d can play a role with anxiety and depression so that can drive off in itself the hpa access best food forms for vitamin d is going to be liver followed by salmon and then sardines egg yolks and mushrooms are another good form so vitamin D, you want to get in its active form as far as a supplement, and um, we like to pair our vitamin D with K2. So generally speaking, we go for about 5,000 IU's as a base dosage, and then you know when people are functionally deficient, they may even need 50,000 IU's once a week or a couple times a week to get them out of the woods, if you will, and then get them back on track. Um, and and the reason why we pair vitamin D with K2 is that high vitamin D has been shown in the serum to drive calcification, which is concerning for things like kidney stones um, and then also just arterial calcification or hardening in the arteries. So you wanna make sure that you have vitamin K2 with your vitamin D um, and that helps to prevent that calcification which is going to prevent like i said the kidney stones and such so that allows more safe use of vitamin d and then vitamin k itself has a bunch of nutritional benefits but not gonna go into that world right now
1: okay and then last let's talk about chromium for its influence on blood sugar and insulin resistance
2: yeah so chromium strengthens the insulin signaling so if it strengthens the signaling that means we require less insulin Uh, which means that we won't have that insulin resistance because the insulin resistance comes from having too much insulin in the body and then the body stops responding to it. So it's kind of a root way of improving not just blood sugar stability, but improving the insulin resistance, which is where we then see, again, with insulin resistance, elevated production of testosterone, and then the PCOS-like downstream effects. So food forms, and this is one we talked on last episode, broccoli is my superhero for PCOS because it has both chromium, a very rich source of chromium, as well as um, I3C compounds to support detox. So broccoli is a huge one. And then uh, green beans are actually another good form of chromium, as is actually romaine lettuce is a decent form, but it only has about a third of the amount of chromium that the broccoli does. So broccoli would be the big superstar of the show. And then when you're picking a form of supplement for chromium, you also want uh, a glycinate form or a TRAX form. Uh, and that TRAC, uh term, T-R-A-C-C, is just a bioavailable chelation. Um, and so looking at about 300 to 500 micrograms of chromium, is a good way to replete. And, and that's one that I'd bring in, especially if we have insulin resistance or prediabetes and the PCOS. That's one that I would, I would look at. I like one by Designs for Health called uh, Chromium Synergy. So we can add that to our show notes as well.
1: Yes. And then let's talk about a nutrient that influences a different mechanism, the mechanism of detox. Okay. What about NAC or N-acetylcysteine?
2: Yes. So NAC is an awesome nutrient for uh, hormonal influence. Actually, it can improve ovulation and pregnancy rates in women with PCOS actually. And it can be used hand in hand with Clomid or actually is starting to be looked at. I said a lot of actuallys there. (laughs) I'm excited about it. It's being looked at in research as an alternative to Clomid without all those funky side effects. So NAC, can improve the viability of our endometrial cells. So actually the livelihood of our endometrial cells, it's also a precursor to glutathione, which is our granddaddy antioxidant. So it helps to reduce free radical expression. And it reduces inflammation in the body, which makes the uterine environment more welcoming. So it can play a role with ovulation as well as reducing the inflammation of the uterus, which then can further help with hormonal regulation. So it's a really nice balance. And NAC, as being a detox driver, reduces those endocrine-disrupting compounds. So this is a definite one that I would recommend for all PCOS individuals. It also has favorable influence on the thyroid, the n so this is one of my favorite daily formulas in like my top five of a, uh, I guess, tool belt <laughs> to have. And so two grams a day of NAC is recommended. Our cellular antiox formula has uh, glutathione, two grams of NAC, and a little bit of B6 to help in the conversion of the glutathione and is a, a great driver for all of those reasons. And then food forms. Uh, food forms of NAC are going to be seen in, in protein-rich foods because it is an amino acid compound. So um, egg yolks, protein-rich foods, and then also very high in cumin as well as the cruciferous and detox-supportive foods like cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, onion, and garlic.
1: Okay, so to summarize supplementation, we're looking at relax and regulate as a form of magnesium and inositol. We're looking at the vitamin D3 and K2 blend in a liquid form. We're looking at cellular antioxidants um, as tools as well as potentially the vitamin C supplementation as well as chromium synergy.
2: Yes. And then not to forget the beginning of the notes of calm and clear, right? Sure. Um, for the stress axis and that adaptogen boost if, if stress is a big driver of this PCOS for sure.
1: Sure. So there will be a long list of supplement links to dive deeper into any of those if they sounded appealing and interesting. Um, now what about the use of bioidenticals or transdermal progesterone?
2: Yeah. And I think as we're getting on our hour of the show, I'll keep this really brief, but I think I will do an entire episode on progesterone because it's a huge, huge pattern of deficiencies or low output, especially in the PCOS population. But progesterone can, uh, build uh, and block estrogen as well as cortisol. So like I mentioned, excessive cortisol can bind to progesterone receptors. Same thing can happen with the transdermal progesterone. And so it can actually help to balance or reduce estrogen dominance, um, which can thus reduce fibroid activity. We can also see the progesterone reducing excessive cortisol or helping to create balance in the cortisol. Now, this is one that I wouldn't preemptively use. I would definitely make sure that we would have data assessment if using a bioidentical hormone. Um, And first, we'd want to make sure that we have conditions addressed as far as the stress access because we don't like to just use, use hormone as fuel to fire. We like to make sure that we are adding this as a direct driver to get us out of the woods while we are tonifying maybe the access with Calm and Clear and Adaptogen Boost, then maybe we'd bring in that um, progesterone. Or if we're going to do a detox first, I'd start there and then maybe bring in that progesterone as a a second line of defense.
1: Okay. So today we've covered a lot of ground on PCOS. I think we could go into a third episode possibly (laughs) at some point, but we'll keep it at parts one and two, uh, for now. So we discussed the functional medicine approaches, supplement strategy, nutrients, and the functional compounds that can help to create hormonal balance in the body. And there's lots more in that episode part one as well. So go back and listen to that. Thank you everyone so much for listening in. And before you go, I want to give another shout out to our virtual ketosis program because this would be a really important tie-in for our PCOS population. Absolutely. So September 12th, we're looking at starting our virtual ketosis program and this is a 12-week program that includes six live webinars. They'll also be archived and recording if you can't make them live at the time of production. Um, We're also looking at supportive handouts and worksheets, a customized ketosis protocol, access to a private Facebook group with both myself and Allie as moderators yes. to share recipes and insights and wins and uh, big goals. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and then we also have our two Eat Fat, Get Skinny and the Ketogenic Kickstart eBooks as well that are part of this protocol.
2: Yes. Tons and tons and tons of stuff. And for a limited time, we're offering this for $99. It is a value of over $450 and I feel really confident, like I said, um, that this gives you all the tools to experience how your body feels using body fat as fuel and definitely could be a catapult to resetting your sexual hormone expression as well. So it's going to use all of the techniques and protocols that we've successfully used at Naturally Nourish, my Houston-based functional medicine clinic. Uh, for over 2,000 active clients and yielding significant weight loss results, body fat loss results, hormonal balance, uh, medication reductions, and so many other non-scale victories as far as feeling more grounded and improved energy and, and um, breaking up with sugar. So all, all awesome things. I am really excited to launch it and hope that you all will join me in the process. And um, you can check out the link on alimillerrd.com backslash ketosis hyphen class or if you check out the books and programs tab it'll be located under there under virtual ketosis so thanks so much you guys for tuning in um, check out the show notes for links to some of the supplements we've discussed as always if you have questions please put them in the ask ally on our podcast page on allymillerrd.com And uh, if you found this episode helpful, please go onto iTunes and give us a positive review and uh, share this episode with friends. If you know of a friend or family member that you think this could be helpful
0: for. Thank you for listening to the Naturally Nourished podcast. Visit our blog at AllieMillerRD.com for recipes, wellness tips, and food as medicine meal plans.